Today's reading is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 13 to chapter 4, verse 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. All right. So, like I said, I have a three-month-old son, and he's, you know, getting pleasantly fat and sleeping well, which is nice. You know, the, it's kind of crazy the first couple of months, those of you who are recent first-time parents, or maybe you've successfully repressed all your memories of being a first-time parent, but the... <laughs> People ask you these questions like, how's it going? Like you're supposed to know how to answer that question. It's just, it's shocking to me the amount of people ask you, ask you to make assessments about how it's going when you don't have the maturity or the wisdom or the experience to actually make those assessments, you know? So, so what happened, like, for our son is he was born, you know, like, 35th percentile or something like that, which is, you know, basically fine. I'm about 35th percentile, so I wasn't worried about it. And what, what ended up happening was... Um, when he was about four weeks old, he uh, started getting really sick, and people were asking, how is it going? And I would say, oh, he's, you know, fine, you know, good. Most of the time people ask you how it's going, and you say, good, that's either saying, I don't want to talk with you about this, or it's saying, I don't know and don't want to talk about how I don't know, you know? And so people would say, how's it going? And I'd say, good, which is mostly code for, based on what am I supposed to assess how this is going? Maybe ask me in 20 years how parenting is going, then I might have a clear picture of what's going on. But you have this kind of gut sense on what to do. You read the books, whatever it is, he gets sick, and one of the things I was telling my wife is that I want to act like second-time parents, even though we're first-time parents. You know, a lot of this, like, hyper-frenzied nonsense, we're not going to do that. You know, we're going to act like second-time parents. You know, we're not going to, you know, disinfect the binky every time it falls. We're going to act like second-time parents. And so what you end up finding is that's actually psychologically impossible. Like, you, need, you, you need the wisdom and the experience and the lumps and the difficulties. So my son started to get sick, and I go, this is a cold. Kids get colds. We're fine. Everything's fine. We're not going to react. About six days later, his cold is getting worse. We took him to the doctor. He was the flu. And so now you hear the word the flu comes out, and now you go, oh, you go from a cold, let's not overreact, to the flu. Kids die from the flu. Uh, this is crazy. So then over the course of the next three weeks, he went from 35th percentile to zero percentile on weight, gained no weight. It was a whole thing. People ask me, how's it going? I would say, good, because I don't know. You know? 
I don't know how to assess what's going on here. Anyway, we switched to bottles. He's now chunky and doing well. He's back up to 40th percentile. So, but there's this, it's just this weird phenomena of you're looking at your circumstances, trying to assess how it's going based on nothing. No wisdom, no experience. You might even have the information, but you don't, lack, you don't have the wisdom or the reps to actually put that information into practice, and so you form all these false, terrible assessments based on nothing, but yet you still do that. And that's actually part of what's going on in this text, right, is just like a first-time parent, you're looking horizontally at what's going on, trying to assess reality, but you lack the tools, the resources, the wisdom, the information to accurately assess what's going on. In this text right here, I just want to read this. God's people are arriving at an assessment of reality. They're saying, look, it's vain to serve God. Why do I say this? Look at the arrogant are blessed. Evildoers are prospering. They test God and they escape. Some commentators call these the anti-beatitudes. Blessed are the evildoers. Blessed are... The arrogant, blessed are those who test God. So God's people, being ignorant, look around, form assessments, and they're wrong. And part of it is when you're a first-time parent, like these people, you don't know what to look for. You're looking for the wrong things. You're measuring the wrong things. You're evaluating things with the wrong set of tools. And what this text is actually going to do is actually going to show us how we need to look differently. So I think I have on the screen um, uh, some next steps, what we're going to look at. So first, they look sideways, but then I think the text looks at it as some people who look inward, but then we're called to look forward and backward and then forward again. And so this is going to be all about how do we assess reality? How do we evaluate what's going on? Um, and it's going to be mostly about how you look because where you look and how you look affects the way that you assess what's going on and the way you diagnose your situation. And if we want to assess our cultural moment or assess what's going on, um, both locally as a church, but also globally as a, as a world, where we look and how we look and the tools we use to assess how things are going really matters. So let me pray, and then I want to just kind of walk through this text and show us some things, and we'll see if we can look more accurately at the world around us. All right, let me pray. God, I ask that you'll make this text clear in our hearts, clear in our minds, that you teach us to look for what you look for instead of looking for what our culture is looking for for definitions of faithfulness and success. In the name of your son we pray, amen. So first, let's look sideways. Let's consider our, our culture a moment, especially in a, uh, an election year I, and especially in uh, an economic climate we're in right now, and especially in um, a globalized, connected world we're in, it's very easy to share this assessment that Israel arrives at. Um, the Lord says to Israel, your words have been hard against me. And they defensively say, how have we even spoken against you? And the Lord says, you have said it's vain to serve God. What is the prophet? Here's the assumption. The goal of life is profit. If you assume the goal of life is profit, the way that you assess how things are going will be through the lens of profit. What is the profit on keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? 
The arrogant are blessed, evildoers prosper, they put God to the test and escape. This is very easy to do. And one of the things that's tempting, especially in our hyperinformation age, is to look around and kind of do these, you know, at least back in my day, evildoers didn't prosper like this. You know, look at the candidates, look at the billionaires, look at the people. Evildoers prosper, you know, lament, lament, lament. And that's valid and is worth lamenting, but it's ignorant if we think it's a new thing, right? There's really only been one good old days, and that was the Garden of Eden, (laughs) right? And so we need to hold very loosely our culture now bad, culture 2008 good, simplistic reasoning, right? Because the same thing that Malachi and Israel's experiencing, you know, thousands of years ago is happening today. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. It still can look like on the surface, like evildoers are prospering and blessing and being blessed by God. And so if you were going to look sideways and form an assessment based on your experience, you can do this. It's easy to do this. It's easy, especially easy for the church to gather around with self-righteousness and say, look at all these pagans prospering. My neighbor is terrible. They make more money than me. That couple will be terrible parents. We would have been excellent parents, but we can't. That guy lies, cheats, and steals at my job. He gets promotion. I don't lie, cheat, and steal at my job. I don't get the promotion. She's a gossiper, a slanderer. She got the article posted. I am not. I didn't get the article posted. Just along those lines, one of the hardest things is when you're meeting with couples with infertility struggles or lots of miscarriages, and yet there's people who are homeless and on drugs, and they have children. How come some people prosper and some people don't? It seems unjust. What is the profit in serving God? What's the benefit? And if you just look sideways, it's very easy to look bleak. It's very easy to seem like it's unjust. But part of what this text is going to show us is that we're kind of looking in the wrong place. And here's the next point here is this looking inward. See, even in Israel, there was corporate collective Israel, and then there was the true Israel. Or the way that Paul talks about it, there is the nation or the ethnic Israel, and then there was the spiritual Israel. Those who kind of were around and part of God's public people and those people who actually feared Yahweh and loved Yahweh and praised Yahweh in their hearts. And so it says here in verse 16, and those who feared the Lord, meaning most of Israel probably didn't, but some of them did. There's this remnant part of Israel. Those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. Now, what are they saying? Here's what's kind of interesting is so far in the book of Malachi, um, God accuses and the people respond. Here, God accuses and there's like this timeout moment where like there's a huddle. Those who fear the Lord gather together, they circle around. And it's almost like that moment where you might say something out loud and once it leaves your mouth, you're like wishing you could get the words back. (laughs) Toothpaste is out of the tube. It's not going back in. I imagine this is kind of like both summative of the whole book of Malachi and the most recent one, that Israel's throwing these accusations at the Lord, God's saying things to them, and kind of like 
those who feared the Lord heard what they had been saying and like, yeah, now that I said it out loud, now that my heart is in black and white, now that you heard what I was thinking, I kind of see my own thinking more clearly, right? Those who feared the Lord gathered together. Because when those who fear the Lord look horizontally, they know there's more than what's going on that meets the eye. So here's the deal with fear. Uh, so the other, maybe a couple months ago, a handful of months ago, I was asleep, sound asleep in my bed, sleeping peacefully. This was before I had a child. <laughs> sleeping peacefully. And all of a sudden, I felt this thing crawling up my back. So I reached back grabbed it in my fingers, and there's this cockroach trying to not die. I'm like flailing, seizing, yelling. My wife thinks something terrible is happening to me because it is something terrible. (laughs) I throw this thing against the wall. I'm panicked. My heart rate is like 200. You know, my adrenaline is through my veins. You know, like I need to take a shower because of my adrenaline. Like I smell bad, you know, and... I was terrified, right? Absolutely terrified. And then, like, what ends up happening is the next number of nights, anytime, like, a hair in my body moved, I was out of bed. You know, I'm, like, looking, like, first of all, this cockroach bit me, and my wife didn't believe me, so I'm Googling, can cockroaches bite? Told you they can, you know. I'm like booking, are there 24-7 cockroach killing services, you know, like spray my house, how many chemicals, I don't care, I'll take whatever cancer the chemicals give me over another cockroach in my bed. (laughs) But I didn't sleep well for like at least a week and a half because of the scared awake hairs on the, you know, any time you move, it was terrible. Then like, I'm not, I don't walk around being afraid of cockroaches, but for the next month I was like looking everywhere in my house, you know, you know, like sneak into the room. And so I became hyper aware of cockroaches for the next month. This is what, this is part of what fear of the Lord is, is it's not just an emphasis on God here, me here, but it's actually this awareness that produces a vigilance. So fear of the Lord is an awareness that produces a vigilance. And so when you're not aware of cockroaches might be in your house, you don't act like cockroaches might be in your house. But as soon as you go from non-awareness into awareness, then you have a vigilance that comes from that. And this is what's going on, is the people in verse 15, we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. Um, there are those who fear the Lord who are going, this isn't, that's not how it works. You're not aware of the long view. Right In verse 15, they're saying, maybe we're on the wrong side of history. And in verse 16, they're saying, you need to take a longer view of history. Right? So those who fear the church, or those who fear the Lord, gather together, God's remnant people, and they say, we know that's what's happening horizontally, and side to side. We know that that's not the full picture of reality. We know that's only partly a picture of reality. That's not a faithful representation of all that is. 
And this is part of what the role of the church is in tumultuous times when people are going, things are worse than they've ever been. Look at the wicked. They prosper. Maybe it's actually a good thing financially to compromise our values and engage with whatever's going on. But the church gathers together and remembers and reminds one another, this is not the full picture. We need a longer view of history. We need an Eden that's further back. We need a new Jerusalem that's further ahead. No political leader is going to come in and bring us back to Eden or into New Jerusalem besides the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so after we look inward, then we are able to again look forward. And this is, this is what I would call a very intense passage, right? Um, verse 3, chapter 317. They shall be mine. God's saying these people, these one who fear my names as opposed to these people, not other people. In the day when I make them my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. This is language of grace. Even those who fear the Lord need to be spared. Those who fear the Lord are not morally superior. They can't self-righteously declare that they're in a better spot. But they too have to hope to be spared. Then once more, you shall see the distinction. What the God's people are failing to do at first is to see a distinction. They look at God's not making distinctions. And the distinctions that's in their mind is people who are thriving, people who are not thriving. But the distinction in God's mind are those who fear the Lord and those who don't fear the Lord. So we're measuring the wrong things. We're measuring the wrong type of prophet. And God says, then, at a time in the future, you will recognize that I am not withholding justice if anything the opposite is happening. And then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. You need to look forward, not horizontal. For behold, a day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. I was actually sermon prepping for this, and I realized that I have a whole bunch of weeds in my backyard, and, you know, I don't like doing chores. I don't like getting my oil changed. Anything that involves work so that things stay the same, I hate it. <laughs> I like work that makes things different. But work that makes things stay the same, it drives me nuts. It, like, I feel claustrophobic. I hate doing it. So, but my wife likes it when I get rid of the weeds. And so I've been trying to think through, how could I make this a more enjoyable thing, pulling out weeds? Because it's the worst. So then the other day I saw this ad on Instagram from Amazon because I'm a sucker and I clicked on it and it was for this weed burning torch. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago I was a 14 year old boy and I thought this is going to be awesome, you know, and so I went to Home Depot because I wanted it that day. I got this weed burning butane torch. You know, it's 20 bucks. Each can of propane is like three bucks. I'm going, this is less expensive than even the poison is. And so I start going to town on these weeds, this weed burning torch. You know, it smells terrible. Part of it is the weeds in my house are like thriving. They're like deep, rich, big stalks, you know, like the size of your pinky finger. And so it takes a while to burn them. But then what ends up happening is you don't burn the roots. It doesn't, it's not hot enough, right? You can't get it hot enough to eliminate the infestation. And this idea of fire as purifying is the whole idea of fire in the Bible. 
uh, theologian N.T. Wright was asked in a pretty progressive setting, would you see the fire in the Bible as literal or metaphorical? And he said, oh, it's certainly metaphorical. And the room all kind of went, and he said, for something substantially worse than fire. Tension gone, tension back, right? <laughs> and this is the, the city of fire as purifying, fire as judgment, is the main idea when we talk about hell and God's judgment. And for God's people, that fire is always seen as purifying, right? It's burning away the impurities. But also for God's world as a whole, that is burning away unrighteousness. And so for people who are covered in the blood of Jesus, the judgment of God is purifying, still painful. But for people not covered in the blood of Jesus, the judgment is punitive or punishing. And it serves as purifying for the whole world. So just like there's these nice rocks in my yard, and I torch them to get my rocks back so that the sinful infestation of weeds are eliminated, this is the image that God gives us. There are weeds growing in my garden, and I'm going to get rid of them. Blessed are the arrogant, false. Blessed are the evildoers, false. Blessed are those who test God and escape, false. We need a longer view. This is part of the question of the timing of God's justice. Right? It's easy to look left, look right, and say, God is unjust because of how things are right now. But one of the images in this text is that judgment delayed is not judgment denied. And if anything, judgment delayed is worse. This whole idea of burning like an oven. When you take fire and put it into an oven, it gets hotter. I couldn't burn my weeds down through the roots because the, the torch wasn't hot enough. There's almost like there's this roaring fire getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And the longer that God delays judgment, the hotter that fire gets. The deeper the fire goes, the more it eliminates the roots. And again, this is painful for God's people, but it's purifying for God's people that you'll experience the fiery judgment of God as I will, but it'll be purifying. Um, but for not God's people, it's not purifying. It's just punishment. And we have to ask the question, especially in our current cultural moment, is how is this a good thing? How is this gospel? How is this good news? And here's what I want to argue, is that everyone wants a judge we want good judges. I heard a story a couple weeks ago of a man and a wife were on a walk with their three-year-old daughter at 10 a.m. Walking around the neighborhood when a drunk driver hit the family walking and the three-year-old daughter and the wife were killed instantly and the husband survived. So this is how do you feel about that? Now, what if I told you 
it was this drunk driver's fifth DUI. Now, how do you feel? Now, what if I told you that at 8 a.m. that same day, that driver had met with the judge who released him early from prison for his fourth DUI because the judge thought he showed genuine remorse. Now who are you mad at? Who are you angry with? See, we want good judges. The question is, who do we trust to be the judge? Because I think justice is written into our hearts. I think we know, and I think whether you're, you know, wear a blue shirt on election day or a red shirt on election day or something else because you're not like that, you know, it's easy to judge. The question is, who's the ultimate judge? How do we take this long view of history and look forward to the fact that Jesus will come back, that God will come back, and there is an oven that is burning that will burn away all impurities? Reduced to stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze. There will leave neither root nor branch. See, most of these weeds I just burned in my yard, they're coming back. You know why? Because the roots are still there. Doesn't mean I'm not going to burn them again because that was a pleasant experience. (laughs) But even this, like the purifying effect of it, there is a positive nature to that. And so wrong side of history, right side of history. Right? Who's prospering, who's not prospering? God's people need to be in the habit of looking left, looking right, but then ultimately looking forward to decide whether God is judge or just or not. Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for the ashes will be under the soles of your feet on the day that I act, says the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> that the sense of like shame and self-degradation that we have because of the awareness of our own sin, that purifying fire that will be painful for us will be joy installation. Because no longer do I look and see and feel my sin. No longer am I perennially, constantly in touch with my negative connect, but I, I get to function like the human God designed me to be. That the weeds in my heart are gone. That my jealousy, my lust, my greed, my insecurity burned away. And so we need to fight this temptation to be Look short, do we look long? And here's the, actually the summary of the entire book of Malachi is verses 4 and 5. So what it ends up saying is, if you want to be these type of people who fear the Lord, instead of looking short-term, left and right, looking long-term at God's justice, looking long-term at God's judgment, trusting him to be the good judge rather than some other human measure of judgment, I want to trust the Lord to do good justice and do good judgment. That doesn't mean I don't have an emotional time or a difficult time with like, holding tightly to the doctrine of God's fiery judgment. And I'm not saying we should necessarily walk around excited about that, but there is a sense in which 
we need to decide which judge do we trust so we trust the Lord. And so the whole of the book of Malachi closes out by saying, now we're going to look back and look forward. But first we're going to look backward. Remember the law of my servant Moses. So even this idea of the word law, we tend to think of the word law and read it through American eyes, right? And so if I said, what's your opinion of the law, ARS, Arizona Revised Statutes, you know, you'd pro- it, we have this like impersonal experience of the law, right? That it's like this culmination of 150 years of bureaucratic process that doesn't really consider individuals, but just this massive thing. And it's literally like this text on a blank page that you can't really interpret. And, it's dis- and so we hear the word law and we think of like the Arizona Revised Statutes. You know, it doesn't like, it's not really connected to me. It's certainly impersonal. Some powerful people somewhere else wrote it mostly so they could get reelected, not because they wanted to do good, right? That's my view of the law, locally. But this word law here is not, that's not the way, so we even hear the word law in Scripture and we read into it, our view of Arizona and the United States law, right? And, but that's not, the, the idea here is Torah's instruction or teaching. It's fatherly guidance. It doesn't mean it's absolute, but it's instruction, it's teaching, God's law, is showing us how to live. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I commanded him. This is the instruction and teaching of a good father. So going back to verse 15, God's people are going, we might as well become arrogant evildoers and put God to the test because if we do that, then we will prosper like all these other people. They're wanting to let the ends justify the means. Whereas the instruction here at the very end of Malachi is, do not let the ends justify the means. We need to be devoted to means and trust God with the ends. Right here, remember the law. Follow my teaching. Be less concerned with outcomes and more concerned with inputs. God is in charge of outcomes, but we are responsible for inputs. We can't accelerate the day of the Lord. We can only prayerfully look forward to it. So we need to remember. And so... When it looks like left and you look right and your neighbors and the politicians and all these people are prospering by letting the ends justify the means, God's people don't do that. People like us, people who fear the Lord, do not let the ends justify the means. The next thing it looks forward to is verse 5. So we look backwards and now we look forwards. And this is the ultimate hope we have here. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So a little more family history. My one side of the family was like the, the whole like uh, Cowboys Arizona side. The other side of my family history were all Jews who came over here during World War II. And so we grew up doing Passover at Grandma's house. You know? And I remember what would happen is we would, um, during the Passover Seder, we would open the door and leave a seat and leave a cup for Elijah. Because the Jews would say, we are waiting. God, send the prophet Elijah back. This is what they're waiting for. I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with decree and utter destruction. This is divine providence, I think, that this is the last promise of the Old Testament, that when the canon was assembled, that they chose to have Malachi 5 verses 5 and 6 at the very end of the Old Testament, that we don't get to read this as Jews only, but as Christians. That John the Baptist, Elijah, the second coming of Elijah, 
came, prepared a way for the Lord. And so we as Christians read this, and we don't need to fear the judgment, but we can look forward to Christ's second coming. That this day of the Lord came, and for Christians, the day of the Lord and the judgment of God certainly and fully and finally and once and for all, that wrath, the burning fire, the oven, the punishment that you and I deserve that was stored up for us, burning hotter and hotter and hotter over time, that that punishment was fully and finally poured out on Christ on the cross for us. This is why God's judgment for us is purifying, not punishing Because Christ absorbed the punishing judgment so that we only get the purifying judgment. And so this sober warning, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction, we need to recognize this. That happened. (laughs) Ultimately, there is none who feared the Lord. Ultimately, there is none who is faithful. Ultimately, there is none who are good and faithful Jews, descendants of Abraham, but there is only one, the book of Galatians says, that was Christ, the offspring of Abraham, the faithful one, the good one. That even the Jews who feared the Lord did not do so fully or finally or perfectly. Only Christ was able to come, the only one who kept the right perspective, who looked in the right place, and the one who bore our judgment. And so when we're tempted this year or maybe in your companies or in your workplaces or households to assess reality, are the wicked prospering? Are evildoers thriving? Thriving? Are those who are arrogant blessed by God? We need to resist the temptation to just make sideways assessments and instead embrace the long view of history. It says judgment is coming, which is good news for those in Christ and very bad news for those who are not. And rather than getting swept up in the anxiety of the where the things are going or how it's trending up, trending down, or who's this, who this, and this kind of swept up into the storm of who's on the right side, wrong side of history, we need to know that God's in control of history. There is one Eden and there's one second coming. We take a long view of God's justice. Let me pray for us. I pray that you work in our hearts and our minds. I pray that this picture of you cleansing the earth with fire, that that would be um, powerful to us. God, I pray for um, those of us in this room who are tempted to frenzy about the state of things, that you'd help us instead pull back and take a long view of what you're doing in the world. God, I ask for people in this room who have not trusted in you, Maybe they haven't trusted in you to be a good judge. And so they want to stay in the seat of judge themselves. Or maybe they haven't trusted you to provide escape from judgment through the blood of Jesus. God, I ask that you'll soften their hearts. God, I pray for all of us who struggle with the judgment of God, especially in the way it's incongruent with our cultural values. God, I pray that we will recognize that we can trust you to be a good judge. We don't need to protect that part of ourselves from you. But God, I ask that we as a church would be people who fear the Lord and that we'd be aware of the fact that you are here and that you're among us and that all that we see is not all that there is. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. And we're going to-